Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? On this episode, we're honored to welcome Brooke Gray. Brooke is the executive director of Embrace Oregon, who works with foster kids here in the Portland area and also in the state of Oregon. So Brooke and I, do you go to Bridgetown? Mm -hmm. This is where I heard. Oh, you do. Okay. You do attend Bridgetown. So we go to the same church. Brooke, why don't you uh, introduce yourself and tell you a little bit about about Embrace Oregon? Sure. Uh, So I am Brooke. It's so good to be here. So Embrace Oregon is an effort here in the Portland metro area to invite faith communities and businesses and individuals into the foster system. What we recognize is that there's a paradigm that exists that says do nothing or become a foster parent. And so we look for really creative ways and create pathways for individuals to get involved in the foster system in any capacity and for kind of any season of life. So it started in 2012 has grown to now be a statewide movement called Every Child Oregon that exists in 19 of Oregon's 36 counties and will be expanding to all 36 counties by 2022. Wow. So this being a political podcast and foster care being a state-run system, would you say that in a perfect world, this would not exist? Or is this like on top of what you believe the state should be doing? So I have a really interesting perspective on this, actually. My work before working in the foster care space was actually working in international community development. So I spent seven years of my life working in the country of Rwanda and traveling from here to there to do that work. And the perspective that it gave me was here's this community of folks that all took care of their own. Every individual that I encountered as an adult had a child that was living with them that was not their own biological child. That's Mm. the kind of community care that existed. And yet there was no child welfare system. So in a country that had been ravaged by genocide where there was a lot of PTSD, there there was a generation of adults that were unprepared to care for children um, or who had experienced incredible trauma, right? Mm -hmm. And so... We came up against all the time substance dependency and PTSD where children were being neglected or abused, and there was no legal way in which to remove that child or protect that child. So juxtaposed to here in Oregon, we have a robust child welfare system and way to care for kids and to help families in crisis with services. But at least in my cultural context, I didn't know anyone who had been a foster parent. I didn't know anyone who was who had been in the system. And so we have this paradigm where we have a really more individualistic community here mm. and yet a robust system that provides services. And I think there's some balance in between those two. So I think we kind of missed it a little bit, but what are some example an example of what Embrace Oregon does for foster kids? Good question. So uh, Embrace Oregon has three main focuses. We provide tangible goods or services for kids in care, things like launch boxes for youth who are aging out of foster care, or boxes of love, which are full of 
$500 worth of brand new items for babies who are leaving children's hospitals and entering directly into foster care. And then we have volunteer opportunities, one-time or ongoing opportunities, where folks in the community can come inside a DHS child welfare office and make over the spaces where children and families are visiting once a week while a child is in foster care provide hospitality for DHS staff who are working in the trenches uh, with kids or as an office buddy sitting with a child while they're in between foster placements or when they've first been removed from their biological families. And then we're relentless about foster family recruitment in that as well. And so since beginning in 2012, we've become the agency's largest foster parent recruiter now through Every Child Oregon and recognize that last year, 50% of all of the general inquiries that DHS was getting from folks for the, from the community who were interested in foster parenting were coming as a result of our work and as a community who is coming forward and responding with radical generosity and hospitality. Wow. (laughs) Radical generosity is going to be my next band name. (laughs) It should be. That was right. Would that not be awesome? I should have trademarked that. Knew it. I like it. Yeah. Hashtag patent. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, so it's a in conjunction effort that you work with the state. You're not like, a completely separate thing. You actually, you're going in and working with the same families, the same kids, and working to try to get more people in there in conjunction with the efforts that the state is already doing. Yeah. So we are a nonprofit org- organization, and this is a really unique space because we are asking and have been invited to be what we call like the third pillar on a stool, right? Mm-hmm. You have the agency, you have the clients that they serve, but we're representing the community at large and bringing that into that space. Can I ask, uh, you know, we, again, we are a political podcast. So the, so any political people, you know, the six people or whatever who listen to the podcast, any political people, we get, you know, throwing you a bone here. This was a, a hot issue in the governor's race last year. And I, I asked because I was intimately familiar with it as a member of New Bueller staff. Do you feel that it is a good thing when something like the work that either DHS is doing or the work that you are doing gets publicized in such a manner and and not that your agency specifically was you know out in the paper every day or on the lips of either the candidates but the work itself about trying to provide homes and families for children needing them is it a good thing when that gets publicized as much as it does or is it a bad thing in that it makes it seem like just a hot button political issue when the reality is your focus is just on providing the services regardless of who's in charge Honestly, it's both for a couple of reasons. One, there's a lot of stigma and stereotypes connected to the foster system. So there's still a lot of people who believe that foster parents are coming forward just for the money or that kids in foster care are damaged. And when that is already the stigma and stereotype, and then you add on to that a very broken system with all of these challenges who's... I'm putting in air quotes. You can't see um, <laughs> who's putting. Gotta start kid, on YouTube, right? I know. <laughs> dang it! The first time we've ever done that, where air somebody quotes. made it. A- <laughs> um, when DHS is putting kids in harm's way, which is what I put in air quotes there, um, and that's the media story. Then it is often perpetuating the stereotype and concern that people have with getting engaged. And yet the Department of Human Services is the only agency that is dependent on volunteers coming forward in order to do their job successfully. Because if they don't have foster families, 
then they can't place kids in strategic mm-hmm. homes, right? Right. Um, and so we, we saw that at the same time. What I have recognized in Oregon as I've traveled through to 19 and counting counties um, is that we live in a state that is generous and who wants to get involved and to help when there's problems and they just need to know how. Mm-hmm. And so in that way, when we can share the scrutiny, which is important on the agency and it has a very important role, and we can couple that with some action, tangible action steps that people can take, it is winsome. And we're seeing people step up at record rates as a result. Hmm. That's great. You mentioned the broken system. And this is something I have to admit, I'm not as familiar with as I probably should be. But what exactly is broken about it? And what should politicians be doing in order to fix the problem. Yeah. So for those of you who may or may not know that are listening, the six, maybe the seven now. <laughs> maybe Hopefully seven. there's seven fans. Some of your friends too. Some in, of my you friends, know, yeah. Those numbers, double digits. <laughs> totally. <maybe. laughs> the Department of Human Services in Oregon has been around since 1971. The first child welfare case in the nation was in the late 1800s. So what happened is we had a breakdown of the family unit And there wasn't enough support coming from the community naturally to help to offset that. And so the legislature created the Department of Human Services. Between 1971 and today, it is now the largest government agency in Oregon serving one in four Oregonians. Wow. I don't, the last biennium, the budget for DHS was $13 billion. It will be around that. You probably, by the time this podcast comes out, you'll have the the figure, but for this next biennium. So... When you have a system that's been created out of crisis, out of relational, familial, and community crisis, the agency is created to provide services and has been reactionary from the beginning. And so it's policy passing over policy, passing over policy, passing over policy, passing. And there's a lot that's changed in our community and our culture since 1971 as well. So just a few, (laughs) a few small things. All that to say, we can't talk about DHS being broken, in air quotes again, without also recognizing that there's some brokenness in our community at large and that those two interact quite a bit. Hmm. So we look at uh, the rates of fatherlessness. We look at the opioid crisis in Oregon. We look at the fact that the percentage of biological parents nationally who lose their kids to child welfare, who them themselves were in foster care as kids, is about 50%. And we see the cycle when we don't have healthy support, relational support around family. And so it can't be only services that are provided by an agency. It has to be coupled with relationship and with community involvement. What's something that you say to a person who comes up and says, my my buddy and his wife adopted a kid and that's you know and they love him and i love him but it's not their real son or whatever because mm-hmm. and i say this as the husband of a of a woman who has a a foster sister who has a countless times in her life and still to this day my wife is 29 years old right now and her sister is 21 still gets asked yeah but that's not your real sister Mm-hmm. It's fascinating to me. So my husband and I are foster parents as well, and we did not have any biological children before. So I'm coming from that perspective. Um, what I believe is that when you put your heart on the line as an adult or as a foster sibling, right, that there is a connection that happens that is the same. And I will tell you as a foster parent, having a child that was in our home for 18 months from the age of 15 months to three years, when she left, 
and I'm sure we'll talk about grief here in a minute, but when she left, it was as if my child had been abducted. Like it felt like I was losing a part of my identity and a part of my heart that still hurts to this day. Um, and, and so yes, there in some cases are, is, um, in difference in relational connection, but at least from the experiences that I've had with the kids in our home, there's really no difference for how I care about them than how I would care for a biological child that was mine. Um, and certainly no difference in how I love and care for them from how I love and care for a niece or a nephew mm-hmm. who is my blood like, relative. That's got to be hard on the kids too, mm-hmm. to get separated from one family mm-hmm. back and forth. Mm-hmm. It is. The thing that was was honestly so interesting to me in this journey was kids that are in foster care love their parents. And no biological parent, I believe, wakes up on a Monday morning and says, today's the day I'm going to neglect my child. There's mm-hmm. a lot more that has led to that moment. And so even when it's unsafe and it's unhealthy, the child that's in care still wants to see, wants to be with their parent. And so it, it is a really interesting co-parenting that happens during that process. But yes, it is hard on everybody when there's transition. Not really related, but uh, I just, you're telling all your personal stories. So I have two adopted sisters and that's actually one that got buried this past weekend is one of my adopted sisters. Um <clears throat> They were adopted Congrats. from. Yeah, if you're listening, <laughs> congratulations, Danielle. Um, mm, that's awesome. But they were they were adopted from South Africa. So mm, I, mm. back to your Rwanda story mm-hmm. as well. So it was a bit interesting for me because my parents adopted them after I had gone to college, and so it was kind of growing up. The first couple of years was like, here are these people that kind of live in my house with my family. But now it's been you know 15 years, and they're every bit a part of the family mm-hmm. is everyone else mm-hmm. they look different slightly i mean they're from africa mm-hmm. so a couple small differences right but yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were we're all set to come here and interview you but mm-hmm. we're uh, you brooke that's, yeah. again i can't see the mm-hmm. where i'm pointing but that's uh first i actually this is kind of a motif with us is like we're great <laughs> about like planning out these podcasts and the guests and the topics and like mm-hmm. had i never told you that before but no i had no idea and you both have a connection. I had absolutely no idea. All right. No, like we see each other like four times a week for the last year or whatever. That's, awesome. that's true. I have, I have two adopted sisters. So that's, so yeah. I feel like that's actually Mr. Interviewer. I'm going to make you the interviewee. Fine. What, what was that like for you? I mean, you just kind of touched on it right now because I've like, I've honestly never had this conversation with my wife. I've just said, her sister is her sister. She mm-hmm. just said her sister is her sister. I've never asked like what it's like to have somebody and she was adopted. And I, and I should also, I said, it's a foster sister. And I feel like I misused that term. She's not a foster. She's adopted. And she was actually, she was adopted from China. So again, that sort of informs the, well, you know, she lives in your house, but she's not your real sister. Again, air quotes, which the listeners can't see, but. What what was that like having somebody grow up in your house, having two people grow up in your house that other people I'm certain at some point in your life asked you, but that's not your real sibling, is it? I don't know if I got that exact question. I mean, again, I was, I think, almost 20 by the time they they were adopted. And so I was you know, basically an adult. My friends were adults. I didn't have the middle school bully making comments about me. Like I said, the first couple years, it was a little bit weird going home. 
not because they were out of place, but just there were these new people there. And I was like, oh, hey, you know, I don't really know you at all, but you've been living with my family for the last several years or several months or whatever long it had been. I think it's just a matter of timing, you know, just having gotten used to them enough that, you know, now they're they're very much a part of the family and, you know, I love them as much as many of my biological siblings. I love that this is common for you both <laughs> and that you're discovering it today. How fun. Like peeling back the layers of the onion, but I think it actually is demonstrative of the interactions that we've had across Oregon with folks because as the system has grown in size and the number of people ha- have been through foster care, we're finding that more and more people have these connections to adoption or to foster care. Um, and maybe that's even why they're feeling more angst and desire for change within the system and then with whatever they can bring forward. So I think it's just, it's really fun to hear your personal connections to it too. (laughs) As we find out about it in real time. Totally. Yeah. (laughs) Right. right. Well, so that's so, okay. So Mm -hmm. there's a question. Do you feel that, that this exact interaction that he and I just had, is that a good thing and that it's like, oh, hey, you did this thing, I did this thing. Or is it good that it's neither of us ever questioned when I say my wife has a brother and a sister and he says he's got five siblings, which I also only just found out like a month ago. <laughs> I was just like, what? I, like, I don't know. Like, you're tall enough that I would have assumed you were an only child. Like, that's all of the that human has to do material is just, it's, it was used. It's already there. Like, it's, it's in you. But I, but you've got siblings and now we're, we're finding out literally as we're talking on the microphone, two of whom were adopted. Well, I knew this already. You're finding out. Yeah. <laughs> well, you had some inclinations like, now wait a minute. But is, is that, is it a good thing that people are having those conversations or is it like, you know what, like, adopted or foster or biological a sibling is a sibling a parent is a parent a son is a son a daughter is a daughter you love them all the same mm-hmm. i i mean i think the, i think the latter i think it's better for kids to not have labels okay. um or to be uh separated out it's why we actually use language that says children in foster care as opposed to foster child we're very oh. intentional about that because foster care is something that happened to them it doesn't define them and it shouldn't separate them within a family. Um, and at the same time, I think as you get to know each other, you get to know each other's stories. And those are formative things that also affect a family. Um, because the truth of the matter is that, um, and I'm not prescribing anything related to your relatives, but when kids have been in foster care, they have experienced trauma. And so often that trauma comes with extra challenges within a family as well. And there's some beautiful things that happen. And there's a whole lot of mess in that too, as you work through it together. And often what we find is it knits families closer together, but that doesn't mean that it's not without heartache and hardship. And it certainly doesn't mean that it ends one day and it's magical unicorns and rainbows either. Um, It's a constant uh, it can be a constant thing that families have to work through. So I don't want to negate the fact that it can be a challenge for family or to mit- mitigate that in any way. But I, I do think that as a whole, when we aren't adding labels to siblings or to children, mm-hmm. it's a positive thing for everybody. Definitely. Yeah. I remember growing up, and so I'm going to get a little, little bit controversial here. So we, we've the, never done this, never before. done that before. Uh, Within the Republican Party, conservatism in general, there is a big emphasis on family and family autonomy. And I remember growing up in the very conservative Christian 
of sort of seeing CPS as like the bad guys, child protective services. You know, it was, oh, they're, you know, if you spank your kid, they're going to come take them away. But also at the same time, I had friends who were children in foster care who were sort of on that end, it was seen as sort of rescuing the children from a bad situation. But at the same time, CPS was the bad guys. So I'm sure we've, we may not have people on this podcast. We're moderate enough that they probably aren't listening. But <laughs> some of the more more far right in our community still may kind of see the family is the ultimate decision maker when it comes to children. The family is, you know, paramount and we should do absolutely everything to keep a family together. I mean, what do you what do you have to say to that? Well, I would say the absolute best case scenario for kids is that their biological family stays intact and that there's support uh, from a community and and as well as services as needed to help to to cre- create that and and keep it intact. Uh, studies show that as well. I don't disagree with that sentiment, but knowing the types of calls that come into DHS child welfare as well, when there's an when a child's in imminent danger. Um, I believe that it's important for families to be able to have a reset and for kids to be protected while that reset is happening. Sure. We were talking to a a homeless gentleman, um, at church, I think, (laughs) and he was trying to collect money to pay for a lawyer to get his kids back. And I just remember thinking to myself, you're living on the street, man. You're asking for money. Maybe your kids are better off where they're at. I mean, do you, is this the environment that you want to bring your kids back into? It's complicated. And the truth yeah. is he loves his kids desperately, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Um, and so if there is a support, whether it's a, a church or faith community or it's another kind of social support structure that is in place that can help with homelessness and houselessness in the case, in that case, assuming it's the only issue, which who knows? Yeah, no idea. <laughs> right. Then that's the best case scenario for the kids too. Our like research would, would show that, but when not possible, right? Um, we have to have families that are safe places for kids in that moment. And certainly I just going back to your CPS question. It's so, it's so fascinating because there are two perspectives on this. And, um, and again, kind of somewhere in the middle is probably t- correct, but, um, Child protective services workers, um, we say a lot, are like first responders in the community because they're showing up at a family's door when they're in crisis. And their goal is not to snatch kids. Their goal is to stabilize the family enough that the kids can actually stay there. It's only when a child's in imminent danger that they would remove a child. And all of the decisions that that caseworker makes are actually made in conjunction with a judicial system. So this is not one social person who has a master's of social work making massive family decisions um, alone. There's a justice system that's walking alongside that path as well, which I think is often forgotten in the conversation. Sure. I will admit that the most I know about CPS going and reassigning children mm-hmm. comes from a Simpsons episode. <laughs> Where Homer and Marge go out to a spa or something for the day and Grandpa Simpson is in charge of the kids and somebody's clothes get stolen. So one of the two has to wear like a bag home and somebody fell in mud. So they're dirty and CPS comes in and sees the house is dirty because Grandpa's misplaced everything. And they just immediately make a a snap Mm -hmm. decision. They say, this is no environment for a for a family to be raised, for children to be raised, like, oh my goodness, this is nuts. And they ship them off to the Flanders next door. So they, you know, they're just across the street. But 
So what you're saying to our listeners? <laughs> what I'm saying is, is that's the not right. Is not true to real life. <laughs> I know we Breaking all love the news. Simpsons. Yeah. <laughs> no, but in that case, not not quite accurate. But but so there there is you know in in reality there mm-hmm. there is a more in depth process of what a what a family's dynamics are like, what the you know what the situation that the children are facing is like, what any dangers, any imminent dangers that the children are in, if it's I'm sure malnutrition, if there's any kind of germ danger, if there's obviously any kind of abuse danger that they're, that they're facing in the immediately, those are the types of things that get factored into the, the decision that the judicial system goes through and processes. Exactly. Yep. And the top two reasons that kids are removed in Oregon is for neglect and physical abuse. Often neglect is connected with substance dependency. So it's a mother who has overdosed. And her kids alone for 24 hours until she comes to it's those kinds of situations that mm-hmm. will will most often bring kids into care. So if you could talk to our state legislatures, none of them listen to this podcast, but if they did, what would you tell them as far as legislation or things that could be emphasized? I mean, again, you, Newt Bueller, uh, this was a big foster care reform was a big one of his his pillars. You mentioned before the podcast that he was actually here. You spoke to him when, when he moved to uh, moved his office to Portland. What, from a political standpoint, would you change if you had total control of the, the legislature, the governor, whomever? Um, great question. I mean, there's so many things, but um, <laughs> I, I'm coming. You know, we're coming off of a legislative session where there was. I think a movement towards three big things that we were really grateful for. So maybe I could frame it that way. And, um, and of course there's always more work to be done. Um, and the first was we saw a, an increase in the, the funding and intentionality around preventative measures and, and care for families ahead of entering child welfare. I think there's a lot more to do in coordinating the different services that exist. And so um, I've been part of a conversation here with behavioral health and mental health organizations and the hospitals and the school districts and DHS. All of those systems are touching our most vulnerable Oregonians, whether it will be at children or, or their families. And so to have there be more intentionality around keeping families together and providing the correct services and support was really important. Uh, the second is that one of the biggest challenges that DHS has faced over the last uh We'll go with seven years, but it could have been even longer than that, has been the retention of foster families. So foster families come forward. They're paid a whopping like $23 a day to -hmm. care for a child, which is not much. Um, And putting their life on the line to welcome a child who's experienced trauma into their home. And when there's massive turnover of caseworkers, when there's not a lot of support felt from the community at large, um, when there is a financial burden on top of working through challenges with a child, it's a lot to ask for foster families. And so we've needed more supports for foster families who are coming forward. And so that was passed in the budget as well, was an expansion of some new support structures for foster families. And then thirdly, I'd say that there is definitely a need for the services that government agency provides and also there has to be engagement with community. It can't just be done in a silo. So we heard from the Senate House Committee of Human Services, from the House Committee of Human Services and Housing, that community engagement 
was a big priority for them, not just for DHS to do, but for them to do and to help to focus and to legislate in whatever ways as, as well. And so the more we can do that and serve and bring forward the families who are experiencing kids being removed, as well as foster families and community members who are interested in wanting to give in this way, I think the better for all kids. If, you know, John Q and Jane Q public are listening to this, you know, or whomever, any, any, any loving families listening to this, and they say to themselves, this sounds like something we really might be interested in. We've got a lot of love to give. We've got a bedroom, you know, stable jobs, whatever. But, you know, what's the thing that completes that sentence more often than not? What's the thing that is a, a hold up more often than not? And what do you, what can you try to say? I, I'm not to persuade. I mean, you're not a salesperson, but what, what can you try to say to make them understand in a better sense? It's not a, a burden or a sacrifice. It's a, a loving, positive, wonderful thing that they're considering doing. Yeah. And a sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> so I will like add that all caveat. Yeah. Maybe. It's all the things. Yeah. Um, I say often it's like the most beautiful, hardest, heartbreaking, incredible thing I've ever done. Like it's all of it wrapped up together. Um, the two questions that we get most often in the community from people who are interested or, um, exploring is, man, I just feel like I could never do that. How do you say goodbye? Um, and the second is, how is it going to affect my biological children? And those are two very valid concerns. Um, the first, I've probably gotten a little bolder in my response to because I actually believe that we're designed with a capacity to love um, and to heal and to keep loving. So just because we have loved and lost doesn't mean we're incapable of loving again. And the children who are in the system deserve our connection and our very real love, even when it's sacrificial. So we as adults are going to have to work through some heartbreak, but it's going to be as a result of coming alongside a child who's experiencing even deeper heartbreak as they're separated from their bio parent and setting them up for success. What greater reason to say yes? Um, the second, how it affects your biological children. I've shared I don't have any of my own, but I have plenty of friends who do and colleagues who do. And the reality is that it does affect your biological children and in ways you can't predict or imagine and it can feel risky. But what I have seen over and over again is that the siblings who have said yes and welcomed kids into their home actually have bigger hearts, have a bigger vision for a community and for caring for others, have great compassion as a result of the sacrifices that they've made inside their home. Um, and that's transcendent in a really incredible way. And you're not just saying that because James is right there? I'm not saying that because James is right there. I mean, look at him. He's uh, compassionate. The massivest yeah. heart. <laughs> I don't know why you're picking on me. So I figure we'll go ahead and, and plug the casino night. Uh, Let's you, do it. Let's gamble for kids. What do you, you say? you are not... <laughs> I normally get the perfect for segue. Adults. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so if you want mm -hmm. to support Embrace Oregon's mm -hmm. mission and go to a fun night of gambling at the yeah. art museum. The art museum. We uh, want you. you can, do you remember the website? Is it yeah, com? right? Yeah. You, yeah. you did too, you sly dog. I, you knew what that was. Sort like, of. Was it this one I just <laughs> checked? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
for the list. James has had his phone out well, like nine times in this podcast. I was like checking the questions I was going to ask. I had to normally have it sure. up here, but there's no there's no internet. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, pdxcasinonight.com. I went last year, got tickets mm-hmm. again to go this year. It's a great, fun event mm-hmm. to uh, support Embrace Oregon. And it's, uh, I don't know if you want to say I'm probably like about. a terrible spokesman for this because I know it's my organization. But let me just say this. There are like so many nonprofits in Portland. I get that. In fact, um, we were involved in a study of the nonprofit sector in 2010. And at that point, like Portland was one of the cities with like the most nonprofits per capita. Hmm. I mean, we're very socially conscious. <laughs> to that end, there are bazillions of galas and fundraisers and events that happen. And I've been to plenty of them and I've held plenty of them and the casino night is the most fun i've ever had ever (laughs) and it was my event which should have been the most stressful but it just was so fun to get to sit down next to people some who are foster parents some who work for dhs community members who are involved in some way or interested and learn how to play blackjack together Mm -hmm. or like be really smart and play in a poker tournament which i will not do but i'll be upstairs in pie gal I love Figo poker. That's the only time I've ever been to a casino with James. Uh I was like, I got this game that you got to try. And Mm -hmm. you and Jacob won like hundred bucks or something like that. Like true, a not insignificant amount of money. Mm -hmm. And uh, how much did you win? (laughs) I I won two wonderful friends. (laughs) (laughs) Totally, that's awesome. That was a good time. We should do that again. On October 12th, perhaps. Hey, there you go. Yes. October 12th. Yeah. No, I had a great time last year. Okay. There's no good segue for that. So (laughs) there's a good segue for everything. You got to be imaginative. See, I got my phone out again because I'm looking at the questions I wanted to ask. Well, give me the next question. Speaking of events for children. (laughs) (laughs) She's got it. I keep hearing about us sending kids out of state Mm. for foster care. Um, Is that a funding issue is it a volunteer issue is it like what what causes oregon kids to be sent to idaho as most things it's pretty complicated but i'll try to give my most simple answer um about three years ago there were a few residential facilities for kids that were shut down in oregon um, because of maltreatment of children and the NDHS has not gained back the beds that were lost from the closures of those residential facilities, um, meaning no one else has stepped up to open homes for kids. And so they lost 100 beds hmm. for children. And these are our youth who often have very complex behavioral needs, um, have compounded trauma or high medical needs, which means that they are hard to place in regular foster care families. So there's that. Then you add that in with a challenge in retaining foster families or a lack of foster families. So we have about 7,400 kids that are in foster care on any given night in Oregon, about 4,000 foster families. So we already have a shortage of foster homes, and then you have children with these the highest level of need. And so the agency is the DHS is the only agency that cannot refuse children. So a child gets released from psychiatric care at a hospital, DHS has to say yes to taking the child. So when you heard about hoteling, that's Mm -hmm. what was happening is kids were, there was no place for them, literally, no foster family to say yes, no residential facility. Like the only option is for a caseworker to stay in a hotel. Um, When there was a lawsuit against DHS, 
that require them to stop the practice of temporary lodging for for children. Then they had to get creative because they still had this population of youth that they couldn't find uh, foster homes or foster families for. And so it's been those kids that they are have been sending out of state to residential facilities that have space in other states. They're going to say something else. <laughs> I thought I was doing that. I stopped. <laughs> What made you think that, James? <laughs> <laughs> That's our podcast mm-hmm. in a nutshell. We think we have something else to say, and um, we I'm just kind of does not. Yeah. It doesn't happen. Is that enough of an answer? I think you so. Want more? Okay. Yeah, yeah. We, no, I mean, we can talk curious. about it more. I mean, this is a political podcast again. I'm trying to steer the conversation to more politics. I know. Keep what? steering. Okay. Um, I'll keep evading. You- just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're a real politician. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. So apart mm. from becoming a foster parent yeah. or going to the casino night, yeah. what else can your average John Q public do? Maybe they don't gamble and they don't want to actually go through the entire commitment of having a foster kid. Uh, what can they do to, to help? So um, there are opportunities for involvement in every community. It can be something as as important as becoming a CASA, a court appointed special advocate who actually gets paired with a child and advocates for them during the judicial process connected with their foster care case. They can volunteer through Embrace here in Portland or through every child across the state. If they're interested in volunteering to sit with a child at a child welfare office when they've first been removed from their foster placement as an office buddy or to provide respite care for a foster parent just for a weekend so they can get a break. All that you need in Oregon is a background check to do respite care for a foster family. So that's a really important connection that we try to make for people. Um, They can volunteer to uh, be on a list where they hear needs from caseworkers of kids that are on their caseload. So we have situations that happen all the time where a youth is going to be placed with their grandparent today and grandma doesn't have a bed or we had a young girl who was invited to prom the week before prom and didn't have a dress. So those are requests that we put out to these lists of folks that said they just want to hear that and be able to meet those needs when they come. And there's dozens of other ways. So if you're in Portland, all of our options are available at embraceoregon.org. But if you're outside of the Portland metro, then everychildoregon.org has a whole list of ways that you can get involved. Excellent. Well, unless you have any more questions... We'll wrap it up. I'd say, honestly, for me, just the last thing is we, uh, again, our listeners are political. James and I are political types of folks. And I feel like a lot of times we get caught up in the horse race, who's winning, who's losing, what seat is vulnerable, this, that, and the other thing. And for the people who actually are elected and for the people who actually are appointed at DHS or in any branch of the government, your, your job is about providing services. What is the one thing that you would you know advertise to a political person about the services that get provided the benefits that get provided and kind of what they can take away with to respectfully well we've we've tried to spend this whole time (laughs) steering more towards politics at least when you read that information in the newspaper about person x got fired or person y had to you know child y had to move from oregon to a new state or you know whatever What's the salient detail that you'd like for them to take from a a services rendered perspective? I think a couple things. One, 
caseworkers have really hard jobs. So I think it's important to recognize that they're doing the absolute best they can given circumstances. But when there's changes in leadership, when there's really heavy caseloads, like it's hard to manage that. So when we can do small things like encourage caseworkers or increase the number of caseworkers positions that are available around the state, all of that actually leads to better care for kids because there's better oversight. There's less uh, kids on a, on a caseworker's caseload. They have to visit a child once a month. So if you have 35 children on your caseload, that's a lot when you're also trying to show up at court and mm-hmm. write reports um, and make good decisions for kids. So I think that would be one. I think the second is that we do have a breakdown in how our systems interact with one another. And so DHS that can only go so far in the services that they're rendering, so to speak, but behavioral health, which is managed through the Oregon Health Authority, and education, which often specialized education plans are necessary for kids who are in foster care because they've moved placements and they've experienced trauma. When the education system and behavioral health systems and the Department of Human Services aren't working together and have and don't have systems that are interconnected in any way, it actually is a disservice to children and to families. And so I think we have a long ways to go in connecting those systems better and to also help children through transition, which I think is an area of great improvement for us across the state, both when children are transitioning into foster care and when they're transitioning home, but especially in that transition home, often that's done really quickly because we have heavy caseloads and we need kids to be off our caseload. And you think about that being another traumatic transition for a child, even though they want to be with their parent. If they have a connection and attachment to a foster family, that can be a hard transition. It might mean a different school. Uh, It might mean leaving friends. And if we don't support that well, then we're going to see those kids come right back into the system. And so we have, I think, a lot of work to do there. Well said. Well, to finish up, as Nick mentioned before the podcast, normally we ask people who their favorite Republican is. But since it's a little less political, we'll ask you, who is your favorite politician? Okay, my favorite politician. I actually didn't know I was going to talk about Rwanda, but I do think we have a lot to learn from President Kagame in Hmm. Rwanda. Here's why. (laughs) Um, He's been the president since the genocide. And so you have... I was going to say, he's not the one who did the genocide. He's not. Okay. Mm -mm. All right. Just clear that up. Just to clear that up. (laughs) But if you think about a divided country, it does not get more divided than two tribes, literally like one trying to kill another and then trying to recover and reconcile from that. And he created uh, community-based tribunals to engage the community and injustice in their own community, and then has been working to rebuild government in a way that invites leaders from all different tribes to be part of government structure. And so although they don't have a child welfare system, as I mentioned at the beginning, they've been working really hard towards that, recognizing how PTSD in particular is impacting this generation of adults. He's a good dude. Hmm. You should check him out. Do you think he'd be more of a Democrat? Or more of a- <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I think his last visit to the White House was George W. Hey, there hey. you go. <laughs> so I don't know we'll, if that's We'll count him. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. Brooke, thank you so much for yeah. coming on the podcast. Absolutely. And, Thanks for and, having me. Exactly. And listeners, we'll see you next time. Or on October 12th. Or on October 12th. Hopefully listen to the podcast before Listen October. and then go, yeah. And then go. <laughs> and then you can meet us in person. I'm yes, meeting great yes. on October 12th. Okay. Exactly. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Rational Republican. 
Please like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting service, or you can listen on our website, jamesaball.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media, and if you're feeling extra generous, you can visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash rationalrepublican. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.